What's your question? Uh, it was certainly my experience at least once in my life in a relationship that I didn't listen to the voice of doubt nearly enough. Uh-huh. And it was not a, a problem of too much doubt, but not paying enough attention to the real doubt. Okay, no, I'm, I'm just going to get up to that part about the question of not paying attention to the voice of doubt. Doubt, of all the hindrances, is the most complex to recognize. Because sometimes, I'm not sure it's doubt as much as discriminating awareness that uh, that presents itself in terms of doubtful thoughts. Uh-oh, maybe I made the wrong choice here. It actually may be a discriminating awareness. And the problem of doubt, which the, the, the scripture talks about as slippery energy that doesn't stay on track, is that it doesn't act soon enough, is what you're saying, on, to, on discriminating awareness. And instead of saying, you know what, I made a wrong choice, we fool around for a long time with doubt about it and don't move. Certainly don't mean to suggest in any way that we never make wrong relational choices. We do. That really don't have to get fixed in terms of the relationship. We can say, whoops, this is not the right relationship. Doubt is the precedes any relationship. It'll probably not only precede the relationship, but come into it. So that once into it, we keep on thinking, uh-oh, maybe I made the wrong choice, maybe I made the wrong choice. Maybe, in fact, you made the wrong choice, and that's a discriminating awareness. But in, if it's not that, if the mind has that propensity for falling into self-doubt, what it does when relationships get difficult is it kicks up its story of doubt rather than work forward on the relationship. This is really a very important discrimination to be made. Sometimes we make wrong relational choices. Really important because what we've been talking about much of today is how to work out um, the ways in which we frighten each other in relationship so that we are not frightened by each other, so that we can speak plainly and truthfully. That's not the end of working out relationships. That's, the, that, that's, that's moving them into the arena of benevolent friendship, caring, benevolent friendship. But we're not completely in love with everybody that we are not mad at. You know, there's a place in between not being mad at people and being able to hear clearly and being in love with them, isn't there? I mean, a lot of people in the world that went, we have a caring, benevolent, non-angry relationship with. So the whole other side is recognizing, which I hope we were doing earlier, those particular traits in the person that we have that particularly speak to us and that particularly turn us on figuratively and literally and all of that. But um, so that there really is a difference between just working out the difficulties in a relationship and actually deciding as a volitional uh, positive choice, I want to be with this one. I think it's important, though, to recognize that those five uh, confusing energies of mind are the energies through which we see difficulties. So that if we recognize them in ourselves, we can work through them in terms of working with people, for instance. So this is, this is the prelude to us talking to each other in our relationship. 
if I know that my principal hindrance is fretting and worrying, one of the things that I fret and worry about a lot, less, by the way, which is at the end of that um, uh, uh, point that I was making about 12-step, um, when I say I'm a recovering fretter as a result of mindfulness, I really mean it. And the reason that I would like to move that truth-telling out of the 12-step arena and into the arena of our discourse in this spiritual community is that I think that we all have a truth to tell ourselves and share with each other that we can hold in a non-censuring community. And when we see it clearly, we, we are able to maneuver around it. We grow past it or around it. We're no longer held by it. The difference is, um, I think I sometimes when I teach about this, I'm so um, uh, inspired by that image of truth-telling. I often feel like saying, who here has uh, experience in 12-step? But of course, one of the things in 12-step is anonymous. So you can't ask people who here has experience in 12-step. It's not good form. I would like to move it in our spiritual community out of its need for anonymity because I think we all of us are burdened with things that are beyond what we can control. When I was not a recovering fretter, I was a suffering fretter. And the more that I told people what a difficulty that mind habit was and didn't have it held in censure, the more I was able to move away from it. The reason that it's important to bring this up before we talk to each other is we each have our particular way in which the mind responds. Um, my, if my principal hindrance was anger, uh, was fretting, I would worry about if I tell this person the truth of how I feel, they'll be mad at me and we'll have discord and what if I can't handle the discord and what if they don't like the discord and what if they leave so that the, the, the hindrance of fretting gets in the way of telling the truth. That's why I wanted to put out both the rules for telling and the intention for telling and the purpose of recognizing one's own hindrance structure. Some people say to me, I don't have any of those. I don't have that thing about sensual pleasures when I'm in difficulty. I don't do that. And I don't get mad and I just straightforwardly well, I mean, it's great. I mean, I, I, I hope that we all do. Do any of you recognize any of those hindrances in you? We have some of them, all of them, more than one. One of the things that, do you think you know what your principal hindrance is? Think, yes. Would you list the five? Hindrances. Five hindrances are lust. It's funny when you say sensual Sensual desire, it sounds okay. Lust sounds bad. Uh, lust, uh, aversion. These are the fancy uh, Dharma terms. Lust, aversion, torpor. Sounds very... It's, it really sounds uh, in the category of uh, sinful, doesn't it? Say lust, torpor. Like you purposely did it. You know that it was something that uh, was volitional, but it's not. Lust, aversion, torpor, restlessness, and doubt are the five. 
Who thinks that they see which one they are, principally? That we see the world through our own grid. How many people think two of them are theirs? All of them. Okay. Okay, three also. (laughs) The truth is, I think that they are all hidden in each other, just as I think that all of the Eightfold Path are expressions of each other, Uh, all of the paramitas and the perfections are expressions of each other. I actually think all the hindrances are expressions of each other, one way or another. When we are filled with lust, we get exhausted, we fret about how we're going to deal with it, we doubt our ability to sustain our life in a clear way, we get irritated with whatever stands in the way of our uh, meeting that lust, we get exhausted of tor- with torpor from the whole business. I think wherever you start in it, everything is a multiple hindrance attack. Um, it's one of the things that I learned early in my Dharma practice is to talk about hindrance attacks and then multiple hindrance attacks. And it sounded like the difference between a cold and pneumonia, you know, that you just have a little one or a big one. I actually think everything is a multiple hindrance attack. But to be able to tell each other, you know, this is the way I process stuff. It's really hard for me. I think it's wonderful for people to be able to say, my principal hindrance is anger. I have a short fuse, just for whatever reason. I inherited it, I grew up with it, whatever. It's really hard for me not to shout and be mad. And then when I think about it later, I feel badly. Please excuse me. It's my principal hindrance. And I'm short and I have brown hair or whatever it is. You know, If we could just put our principal hindrance into the same category as the other stuff that came in the package and not be in an adversarial relationship with that, then we see, you know, I am short, so I buy my clothes in a short person's store. And I do, I did at least have a principal hindrance of restlessness. So I caused a lot of trouble fretting about my children, phoning, are you there? Are you really there? Are you well? Uh, Are you mad at me for what I said? Especially with adolescent children where you phone and they say, Mom, don't even phone. I mean, it's fine, relax. You cause a lot of trouble to people with your, with your, with your, but then they get used to you, and they really reinterpret it. They say, well, I understand that it's just you, Mom, and that it's not, not taking it personally. It's you and your fretting. It's like I don't take it personally that I'm short. To be able to tell ourselves the truth about ourselves and tell our intimates the truth about ourselves. So I would like to propose that we take um, 20 minutes, half hour, to go and have some private time with your person and talk about, you don't have to solve your life's difficulties now. You could make a list of these are the topics that I'd like for us to talk about sometimes. You could talk about, this is what I think is my principal hindrance and this is why I think it stands in the way of my communicating with you as fully as I might under another circumstance. You could do a practice that I do with my uh, friends and intimates once a year um, in advance of the new year where I say, what do you see about me that I might not see? 
that might be helpful for me to see as I start this new year? That's the hardest of the three alternatives I just gave you. Uh, It's tremendously meaningful. When I have somebody close enough to put into those categories, I ask three people every year. When I have people close enough to be in that category, they're really an intimate of mine. My husband didn't get into that category until just a few years ago. That's really true. But, and not because I didn't think he loved me, but it's very hard to keep your most intimate person in that category because they have a personal vested interest. And for them to do a dispassionate view, not fixing you so their life will be better, is really, is really important. So it wasn't that I didn't trust him before that. It's just, with the best of intention, you need to be sure that someone is seeing clearly. You have to think that they're seeing clearly. So um, what about if I ring the... Do you you suppose uh, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 minutes each is enough? And then we'll come back, and then we'll sit, and then we'll do loving-kindness practice to add yet one more Dharma perspective to living with people in a relational world. And then we'll finish. So you be on your own recognizance to know that 20 minutes, so share it, okay? And uh, we'll ring a bell just before then. So before we uh, finish with loving-kindness meditation practice, as I said we would, um, I'm so glad to have this little piece of time to finish up a piece of teaching that we started early this morning and didn't quite tie up the end of. But it's perfect that... I didn't then because it fits better now. We did five pieces of the Eightfold Path. You remember we did right understanding, right aspiration, right action, right speech, right mindfulness, and we practiced, we talked about them. And we didn't quite make specific (coughs) right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness, which are the three last pieces of that path I really want to put them in for the completeness of the path so we will have done relationship in a Dharma context. Also because they're tremendously important. Uh, Remember just a little bit ago we were talking about that the absence of antipathy and the openness of communications are like the prerequisite for um, not having strife with people, not not being frightened by people. But after that, there's the place of why will we be delighted in that person? We have to move it from like a neutral situation to a place of delight. And there are two pieces that I want to use to do that. Actually, two more Dharma pieces. One of them is the piece of those three path parts, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. And another, uh, yet another piece of Dharma and another list 
are the factors of enlightenment and we'll just put them in and then we'll do the metta all in this short time that remains the the definition of right effort in the eightfold path is really wonderful and wonderfully clear i didn't get it right for many years i thought right effort was making a lot of effort like good effort like try hard actually it's a specific kind of effort and it is the effort to be alert to the presence in the mind of wholesome mind states and to cultivate them and the presence in the mind of unwholesome mind states and not to cultivate them it's a particular kind of effort it doesn't mean shoulder to the wheel it doesn't mean grit your teeth it doesn't mean sweat and strain it means that particular that particular attention the presence in the mind of wholesome mind states the absence or, or and cultivating the presence of unwholesome mind states and not cultivating that means that uh, when we recognize it, what we did before during the lunchtime, when we admired in each other what was valuable about ourselves, wonderful to be able to make that manifest. A lot of times, I think in relationship, where uh, where when things are good, we just kind of go along. Well, that's okay. So far, so good. That's okay. So far, this is pretty good. This is okay. This is okay. And we're looking for the next sign of trouble to admonish or deal with. We don't often spend a lot of time noticing what was wonderful. This was a great day. It was really a sad piece of my own life. My father's... Uh, my, my mother died when I was uh, a young woman. My father remarried a lovely woman who, quite young, developed Alzheimer's and uh, died actually quite young of severe and advanced Alzheimer's. And he took care of her as long as it was at all possible for him to take care of her uh, on, on his own. And uh, even when it was quite difficult in her memory and judgment had altogether gone, he said, I'm so moved by however much care I have to do with her and for her, at the end of a day when she's completely forgotten already what we did all day, she'll often get into bed and say, that was really a good day. Thank you. And I, I'm touched by it because he found it tremendously difficult to find a, a, a care place for her until she actually died, way after it was... <coughs> at all feasible for him to take care of her and ultimately did because he couldn't but what kept it going is that she said that was really a good day wasn't it I think to myself what if we got into bed with our person at night and said that was really a good day thanks so much for being in my life that'd be a good thing to do not that hard you know sometimes we think of you know we, we think that we demonstrated uh, you know we we demonstrated in, by touching people or snuggling up or being sexual with them or sensual with them. It's wonderful to say it. It was really a wonderful day, and I love that you did this or that. Thank you very much. So there's one thing about the right effort: cultivating, recognizing, and cultivating. We do it with children, you know. So you, you know, it was really great. 
But we're always that piece of us that needs to get told, you did that great, that was wonderful. Not cultivating in the mind unskillful mind states, it's very hard not to hold a grudge. It's extremely hard not to hold a grudge. I think that, and I think, by the way, for different people it's different. Some people, they say, okay, we got it out, all over, finished. Other people, it just hurts their nervous system for the longest time. And it's not that one is, you know, worse than the other, or if we were really all um, skilled, it would roll off all of us the same way. Different people have different nervous systems. Who knows? We have different nervous systems. We have different backgrounds in our family. We have some of us very sensitive to criticism. Other people... Even the degree of enlightenment, or the degree of insight, let's call it that. Uh, I love to watch uh, the Dalai Lama. There's a story, which I tell you, a very abridged version of someone pointing, I have this interpreter pointing out to him uh, as he was uh, doing a teaching in front of 1,200 people that he had read the text wrong. And uh, the interpreter pointed it out to him, and he said, no, no, I didn't, it was this way. And the interpreter said, no, 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 it was the other way. And he, no, 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 back and forth, no, no. And then he looked down in the text, and he looked up, and he laughed. He said, you're right, I made a mistake, ha! And laughed in front of 1,200 people. And from the whole week of teaching, that was the most important piece of the teaching for me in the entire week, that it's all right, you know, I made a mistake. That's like, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Please forgive me. It was this way. That when we are not defensive and we're not protecting our own turf, there's nothing to protect, actually. We've built up an imaginary person in there, and then we have to protect them. If you know that there's nobody to protect, you're really home free. I mean, that's, that's a lot of dharma. and taking a whole other day and maybe a lifetime to realize it, but that's actually true. So to be able to say... This is a skillful mind. This is a, when we have a grudge, to be able to say, "I am caught in this grudge." It's a very painful mind state to be caught in a grudge. It's not skillful to nurse that grudge. Notwithstanding, you know the line from the Mikado about uh, the Lord High Executioner. I've got a little list of people who never will be missed. You know that. I am the Lord High Execution. I've got a little list of people who never will be missed. Each of us have in our heart that little list of this person said something offensive and that person said something offensive. And in our intimate relationships, we really keep that list updated. So when somebody does something now, we can say, not only did you do this now, but you did that two weeks ago, Tuesday and last year. And I should have known before I took up with you because I saw... 18 years ago that you already had that trait and you did it that time and that time and that time and that time and that time. They're all categorized by particular offense a number of times. And I think that we do it on some level protectively because we're um, animals with viscera and on some level it's a protective mechanism. You know when they, I'm sorry to make the analogy with mice in, in experimental psych classes, but I think it's a good analogy. If you discover that if you step on this pedal, food comes out, and that pedal, you get a shock, 
you learn not to, to watch out for that shock. You don't watch out for the food pedal. You step on it accidentally, you get some more food. But you watch out for the shock pedal, not to step on it. So you have to keep in mind, keep in mind, shock pedal right over there. Be on the lookout for the shock pedal. I think that we do that in our relationships. We're on the lookout for where we think the fire is going to come from. You know, that, and since we're on the lookout for that, we'll see it immediately and say, ah, see, more of that. But then we have to keep telling ourselves a story because otherwise we might, I think, I, by the way, don't believe we have to keep telling ourselves a story. I think we're free when we stop telling ourselves a story. But as long as we feel that we need to protect ourselves from that fire, like sniper fire or whatever, you have to keep telling yourself the story about be on the lookout for that particular wavelength of fire. As long as you keep that story, you keep an alienation happening between you and them. Okay, here is so-and-so who is almost trustworthy, but I can't trust that thing, so I'll just be on the lookout for that. Can't see the whole person. What about if we drop the stories? You know, that um, we can, you know, in relationships. trying to decide if this is a worthwhile story to tell. <laughs> it might be too trivial, but I do it anyway because it popped in my mind. Seven years ago, uh, we got in the car to go to a restaurant for dinner. In best mood, I thought. On the way, he said something, I said something. All of a sudden, I can tell it's quiet in a peculiar way. You know how when you live with someone, you know that the air just changed come out somehow. I said, I think, I, you know, are you mad at me? Well, yeah, matter of fact, when you said this, uh, I felt a little bit criticized. I said, well, I didn't mean that. I didn't say that. Well, yes, you did. You did say that. You said this and this and this. I said, well, I think you heard wrong. I don't think I said this. I said this and this and this. And I said, but I'm positive that you said that. I said, well, if I said that, I probably meant this and this and this. And you can go from there. You know how you do that sort of a thing with a person. It's called processing in, you know, psychological terms. I think to myself, save us from processing. But on this particular case, but we'll get, what did you mean when you said and when I said and when you said? And by that time, we had gotten to the restaurant in Somerville, a particular Mediterranean restaurant that isn't there anymore. I loved it. And came into the restaurant and sat down, and I opened the menu, and I thought, I just got it. If we continue to process this event, or we can enjoy the dinner. And I said, listen, whatever it was, I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Let's eat dinner. Finished. And it was like a miracle, you know. And this is not the only time in my whole life that that happened. But what was miraculous in that moment was to see from how intense a discussion could go like a bubble, boop, gone, and then eat dinner. For people for whom there's a reservoir of goodwill, which I'm sure this is true for everybody here. If you have a sign, you say, wait a minute, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It's as if, let's not discuss it. Let's not war it through to the end. Let's not process it. Let's say, I love you. We messed that up. Let it go. We'll start all over again. Back up the reel for 10 minutes. Let's pretend we're just now, you want to go back home and start out again? And we'll erase it. Let's pretend we went home. And we didn't say that. Nobody meant it. It's like cities of refuge. Nobody ever means it. 
We accidentally put our foot in our mouth all the time. We don't have to process everything to death. And the, the, the business about grudge, which is really important to bring up, is for some people it's easy to get over a bad feeling. Other people, it really, really hurts them in their nervous system. Who knows why? So the two things that I've learned from that. One is that we should be careful not to offend each other because we're very vulnerable. We're cream puffs, actually. And you know, I, I think we are. We, we, we pretend that we're not so vulnerable, but we actually are. So I think it, it mandates temperate talk. Gently will I speak, not harshly. It mandates apologies. Not people say, but I wasn't wrong. It was they who were wrong. It's not apologizing. It's not, it's not taking the guilt for things. It's saying, I'm sorry we made a mess of things. I'm sorry what I said hurt you is always true. Whether or not you meant offense or you didn't offend, mean offense, I'm sorry if what I said hurt you. I hope it's always true. Let's start again. Not to carry on a grievance. Remember it. Tell it to a few people. That's actually one of the ways in which we nurse along grievances is we call a few people and we tell them about it. And they can't believe what happened and what he said and she said and this one. I was teaching this once and uh, a person in the class said, burst out suddenly. I said, you have to forgive people. We're all inept. And uh, somebody named Tom said, burst out. He said, well, you know, Sylvia, forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. I said, Tom, that's such a good line. I said, do you mind if I use that to teach with? He said, no, you can teach with it. He said, but you always have to say Tom said it. <laughs> so I have always said Tom said it. But he's right. Forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. If you do not forgive, you have a piece of your heart tied up in not forgiving and a piece of your vigilance tied up in telling yourself the story, this person is untrustworthy, this person will never remember this person. Nah, nah, nah. And then you make them other than yourself and you put them at a distance from yourself. It's not a way to establish intimacy. So that's about right effort, the effort not to keep in the mind unpleasant, irritating, separating states, the, the, to keep in the mind what is wholesome. It does not mean denial. Absolutely doesn't mean denial. It does not mean not telling yourself the truth is this has been an incorrect choice of person and I really can't live with them. Or I, this, is a, this is a thing that if this person cannot change, I cannot live with them. It does not mean putting up with it. It does not mean denial. It does not mean any of that. It means doing whatever we do with skill and with clarity and with wholesome intention. That's what it means. Right concentration and right mindfulness are what this practice are all about. Actually, it's a Dharma practice is depends on a certain level of concentration, a certain level of focus, a certain level. Mindfulness really rests on concentration. That the definition of mindfulness is the balanced awareness of the truth of a situation, so that we can respond with wisdom, which is always with kindness and compassion and enthusiasm support. In order to have that balance, you need a certain level of steadfastness in the mind, which depends on a certain level of concentration. So mindfulness, so 
Right mindfulness and right concentration. I like to talk about together. Right mindfulness and right concentration. I like to talk about together. And I talk about them on retreat or in a life in terms of spending some time in a focused practice, which means paying attention either sitting or walking, but having some practice in the life which restores balance and and uh, composure and alertness in it. You could take the same notion of concentrated focus, balance, and awareness and, and into a relational practice by saying a relationship doesn't stay on a balanced level unless you put effort into it, unless you spend some time doing it. So that really the practice of relationship depends on spending time in it, devoting attention to it, paying attention to it, dwelling in it, paying attention to it, being alert in it, in all of the ways that we've said, of telling the truth, of communicating, of talking with, of being with, of nurturing those with the leading edge of everybody's practice, of being helpful and supporting the trailing end of everybody's practice. I'd like to add one more thing, which I think moves it over into the direction of not just living with somebody in harmony, but living with somebody in, um, in a way that's really um, gratifying and exciting. And I'd like to add the seven pieces of the factors of enlightenment, they'll repeat some of the path parts. The piece, the piece, the, one of the seven factors of enlightenment is the capacity to be concentrated and focused. So that was a path part. It repeats in a factor of enlightenment because one of the things that concentration does is it allows us to be steady and steadfast and continual. And really one point in so that even though there are lots of more interesting relationships around, or other interesting relationships around, we're able to sustain a commitment to one. Concentration is really important for that. Right, um, we're doing uh, factors of enlightenment. Concentration, calm or tranquility, is one of the factors of enlightenment. When people devote themselves to living in a context that's... um, not an agitating one. We've talked about it in different ways when we've said, gently will I speak, not harshly. In a non-adversarial way will I live with this person. That I'll say, we have a problem, not I'm having a problem with you. That we keep the atmosphere of our relationship and the home that we have or the relationship that we have together one of tranquility so that we both of us can maintain our balance in it. It means lots of things, tranquility and calm. It means everybody working so that the ship floats in whatever way they do. Everybody contributing to the ongoing enterprise of their relationship. It's like Tayar saying, if you're going to keep that relationship going, everybody has to put something into it in whatever way they can so that the relationship sails along smoothly. Concentration, calm, calm. Concentration, calm, equanimity, equanimity. The sense of equanimity is not is different from tranquility. Equanimity doesn't mean blah. 
Equanimity means balanced. And really it means that balance that allows for all kinds of expressions of passion and of, of all varieties. Excitement and happiness and joy and grief that we should be able to hold each other's whole range, show each other our whole range of emotional display and be open to the other person's range of emotional display and hold it in the context of our relationship, some sort of equanimity that we, each of us in our lives is committed to the feeling, the full range of our feelings and feeling them in a way that somehow contains them, that we, that we make a, a, a pact with our partner that our relationship be a context for holding the whole range of our feelings, that um, we have a whole range of styles and ways in which we relate to each other. Some people, sometimes people have a notion when they meet me somewhere and I'm introduced by a third person, they say, this is Sylvia Borstein, she's a Buddhist teacher, and they lower their voices right away. Like, Buddhist teachers speak quietly. Or people will ask me, do Buddhists have birthday parties? You know, do they sing? Do they dance? They do everything that everybody else does. And we even talk loud and fast and get excited uh, to understand that the whole range of emotional feelings is what's available to us, but that we make our relationship a context for respecting that in both of us. The peace of with kindly intent and not harshly carries through in that whole range. So that's concentration, calm, equanimity. The three other parts, which really relate specifically to relationship, I think, have to do with zeal, energy, interest, enthusiasm, rapture, delight, investigation. That sounds like more than three. Three are investigation, rapture, and zeal. But those are all the components of all of them that when we are really interested in our relationship, it gets exciting. Um, I got asked, it was awfully sweet, to one of the Catholic parochial schools to talk about, uh, to the senior class in family life values. And uh, since the teachers in that school are monastics, they invited me because I'm not. And uh, they said it's kind of silly for us to teach family life values when it's, these, are, these are 18 years old and graduating from high school folks and they have grown up questions like how can you stay, so is it really possible to stay interested in somebody in an exciting way after 10 years or 20 years or 30 years and how do you do that? And uh, to talk about, uh, I didn't talk to them about Buddhism, I just said, yes, it is. But actually, when you think about the, the factors of enlightenment, you think about the possibility of when you pay attention to something, it being continually interesting that the same person that you knew 10 years ago or 20 years ago continues to be interesting 30 years later, probably more interesting. Who knew that that person would turn into this? You know, that, that there would be a way that we could look at something. Fritz Perl said, if we are bored, it means we're not paying attention. That there is always something new to be seeing 
and looking for that the problem in boredom is not that stuff is boring, it's that we are not attentive. So, in fact, of course it's a practice, but imagine being able to come to a relationship 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, and find it interesting and continually interesting. And a source of rapture and delight. You can wait for the interesting to bring up rapture and delight, or we have the possibility in intimate relationships that have a sensual component and an erotic component to add in the delight and add in the excitement to wake up the mind. I I think that it's not an insignificant part of relationships, that um, we have the possibility as relational people to live with people, to touch them, to be sexual with them, to share our meals with them, to share our sensual life with them that brings a certain amount of delight to the mind. Um, I remember reading a text by uh, Upandita uh, called uh, In This Very Life. It's a wonderful text about how the mind unfolds with progressive um, practice and clarity uh, just continues to um, emerge. And there are all kinds of instructions for the meditators and for the people who run retreat centers to cook terrific meals at the retreat centers. And I thought, it's interesting because that's the only kind of sensual out opportunity in retreat centers and is you get, you get to have food. But the point of, it's not the only, actually meditation is very exciting as well, but at least for starters, the food is interesting. <laughs> Uh, the food is the most interesting. Next is the Dharma talk. When, when actually you learn how to pay attention, that gets to be tremendously exciting, more exciting actually than anything else. But at least for starters, a beautiful food display at lunchtime so picks up the heart and mind, brings a certain amount of delight. Really learned early on that delight is one of the things that creates buoyancy in the heart and mind and allows it to stay afloat for whatever the truth of the moment is as it as it unfolds. So we're then back again to the idea of dosage. In our relationships, we need to tell each other the truth. There will be some difficult times. We need to program in with conscious intention times that are just delightful, that we do something that reminds us because we're enjoying it and it's pleasurable, how nice it is to have a companion in sensuality, a companion uh, that we share in a special intimate way. brings kind of delight to the heart and mind and allows us to then be open to hearing about changes that we need to make. It's really when you teach those the factors of enlightenment, I've never quite taught it that way before. <coughs> you normally t- teach the factors of um, concentration, calm, and equanimity as being those that make the mind steady and um, and composed and the factors of zeal and rapture and investigation, looking for something new to see about each moment so that we'll understand it more deeply. We normally talk about it as really coming to that seventh factor of mindful awareness in the largest way of the truth of our mind and the truth of how things are. But if we take that same map and put it into a relationship and say, 
we can, can create the context of a home of big enough spaciousness to have that equanimity that holds both uh, the balance to see clearly, the concentration to keep with it in a steady way, and the rapture and the delight and the zeal and the enthusiasm to keep it awake. And that quality of investigation that really looks for growth and learning and excitement to come out of it, we could wake up, not in that piece of our life as well as the other. It's all one life. It's not apart from it. We do physical things to wake up in our physical body, wake up our minds, wake up our relationships, wake up. So, it's a bunch of Dharma maps today for how to do relationships. And we have five minutes left, so we'll do the last of the Dharma maps that I'd like to do. We'll do the map of the uh, Brahma Viharas, particularly that of uh, goodwill and loving kindness. So I'd like to invite you to sit in a way that's comfortable for you. Good map. The map says when the mind is open and the heart is open, spacious, resting in equanimity, it responds with compassion when confronted with the pain of another person's situation. It responds with sympathetic joy, no envy, when other people have good fortune. And it responds with friendly goodwill in all situations. That's the capacity of the relaxed, awake heart. So I'd like to I'd like to do this variation of loving kindness instructions. It's one that I do in my personal practice. I often do it when we meet here weekly. I think to myself the wish that I have for the well-being of all beings, that when I'm happy or content or delighted as I am in this moment, the possibility of being a human being and alive And I really do feel good. I wish that for other people, and I wish that they shared that. But the concept of all beings is quite vast. I don't know all beings. I can sense that they share with me the desire to be happy. But I know a lot of beings by name. So what I do is I close my eyes. I think my good wish. I feel myself breathe. And I recite to myself, in my mind, the names of all the people who are dear to me. And start obviously with the... I actually start with my grandchildren and work up through my grandchildren and my children. And then my husband. And then all my friends and teachers and colleagues and peers. And I go on and on and on. And sometimes I think I could sit here all day 
think of another name and another name. And at some point, I lose the names and the names get to be extra. I figure my names will overlap your names and all of our names are overlapping everybody else's names. I have this vision that if the whole world sat down together and just kept on saying the names of the people they cared about and discovered how wonderful it was to live in that place of spacious open heart, we'd all open our eyes and look at each other and smile and the world would be a different place. So let's sit together and do the naming practice for a while and then I'll give you the instruction about opening the eyes and smiling. Before we smile and open our eyes and look at each other and appreciate each other, just to formally end this day by making a dedication of merit that our practice and our study together be offered. Whatever merit accrues from our study and our practice together be offered for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy, may all beings come to the end of suffering. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 1, 1998. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.